Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. In today's cast chat, we'll discuss the overarching themes from our first season. We hope you enjoy. Lovely and wonderful gentlefolk, welcome back to the Soundweavers podcast and welcome to episode 25. This is our last episode of season one and we are so excited to be here with our final cast chat. As always, I am your host, Dr. Rosanna Moore, and I'm joined with my two wonderful co-hosts, our producer, Dr. Adam Paul Cordell, and our editor, Dr. Blair Kerner. So hello, my dears. How are you today? Hello. Hi, Rosie. How are you? I'm good. It's the end of season one. We did it. We did 25 episodes of a a podcast. So without further ado, what are we doing today? Well, we're going to do a wrap up of what this first season has brought us. But instead of going through the normal format of starting with performing, then community engagement and education, and then life skills and administration, we're going to flip it on its head because we know that life skills always got a little gypped. (laughs) So without further ado, I am going to pass the microphone on to Blair to talk about what she has taken away from this first season. Thank you. So when reflecting back and and looking at the transcripts and listening to the podcasts again, I was reviewing the different life skills, career skills, administrative skills that a lot of the individuals and organizations were referencing. And I came up with three overarching topics. First is about making connections and relationships. It's a huge thing that everyone was mentioning in, in a variety of different ways, which we'll go into. The second was adaptability, which obviously pandemic was a big version of why that's necessary, but other reasons as well. And then, of course, asking some hard questions and kind of reevaluating both themselves as well as their ensembles as they continue to move forward in their careers and the trajectory of the ensembles. So going to the making connections One of the things, whether it was through relationships of how these organizations got started, right? Their friends through school or meeting up at a festival, those connections might have started the organizations to uh, connecting with different other ensembles or composers to commission, to connecting with audience members and organizations in a local city, to connecting with even volunteers. So some examples of this, for instance, Pascal LeBeouf was all about you know, relationships and connections. And when he commissions, he sits down and has some coffees and chats with people and really wants to learn about the people that he's actually composing for and builds that really interesting connection to make sure that the piece is going to really sit well with them. And I love that that is then reflected in his contracts with them as well. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's so important to him. That's like 100% part of his commissioning and composition process. Uh, Lake George Music Festival, you know, one of the things that really stood out to me is that everyone that goes there and attends, the majority of them at least, will go and stay at local people's houses for the entire festival. Mm -hmm. Meaning the connections of the festival 
festival has made in the local area with volunteers is so big that people want to house individuals for two weeks, which says a lot, right? You know, having someone come into your space, but those connections that they made for volunteers in the local area and, you know, Lake George is a, a plop and drop, right? So they might, that's where their house is, but that's not where all these people live permanently for their life, right? So mm -hmm. they made such an impression in such a short period of time that they could really just drop in and go for it. Acropolis is huge in their particular location and doing a lot in their educational initiatives and in particular like residency programs that literally build through from years to years from younger all the way up. So they stay there in one place and build deeper relationships rather than just dropping in briefly. Um, Kalia was mentioning that she actually, the reason why she's so successful as an individual trombonist, as well as a composer, is her connections that she made outside of school in New York City, right? So mm -hmm. she actively mm -hmm. pursued these opportunities outside of school because she was actually having a little bit of a challenge within the school system and found so many connections outside that she was able to create her own career within that local area, which, you know, New York is huge, making an impact in New York says something, right? Yeah, because absolutely. of the connections and the actions that she's doing. Well, I just wanted to jump in with regards to Kalia because one of the things that the people she made connections with were people not at Juilliard but at the Manhattan School and I'm sure at the new school and Stony Brook and everywhere else that's kind of in the New York City area but it kind of brings up the whole thing of yes yeah, school pride is great but you're going to be working with people from other schools for the rest of your career as well. And that is so important to make those connections. I don't care if there's a rivalry between school A and school mm -hmm. B. If you get on with someone on that personal level that you want to create art with them, do it. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's really interesting and important about um, pretty much all of these artists is the idea of flexibility, right? They aren't boxing themselves into the expected ways of making connections mm -hmm. and the expected ways of being, but in fact, they are flexible and open and um, excited about these interactions with other individuals. Exactly. So hint there. So life skill for anyone who's interested in this pursuit as a career make friends, make connections, get used to, <laughs> even as an introvert for myself, get used to talking to individuals and understanding what their needs are and what they want and how to work with them in a variety of different settings, because that just seems to be one of the, the biggest takeaways from this past year. Um, moving on to the second thing, which is adaptability. In the very onset of this past year, you know, asking literally what was one of the skills that has been very useful to them when Sync had mentioned adaptability was crucial. In addition to the fact that, you know, they've had a few different people changes over the years, so they had to adapt to the relationships. Uh, when they're on tour, there are so many unexpected things that happen that they had to not only anticipate, but then be able to morph and change as things moved around, right? So they mentioned adaptability 100% because of that touring opportunities and for them even some you know I believe um, one of the members had like a back issue and so like they all had to practice on the ground and do different things because you just couldn't expect it um, fifth house gave a great example too of adaptability and of course this goes with pandemic as well but more specifically one of the things that happened during their summer program was literally the during the first performance the internet failed for the entire city right so like they had decided to do like a whole you know system update or something and they didn't know about it and they said one of the things that was really interesting to the students was seeing on the back end how fifth house adapted and adjusted and quickly made changes and prepared things and they said that was such a big learning experience to understand how 
people move and change and quickly reevaluate and, and fix things, you know, on an adaptability mindset. So the fact that they were so flexible, as you had mentioned, Adam, really helped to like give it their all and they couldn't fix the bigger issue, but they could come up with, you know, <laughs> plan C, D, E, F, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Anna Lynn Jones had mentioned for her, she actually had a health scare, right? So there was something in that, which she was a little startled by and wasn't expecting in her own personal career. And then she actually took that and found a beautiful way of connecting with others, which is all the music that she does in hospitals. So that was a really interesting and thoughtful thing. And then she also mentioned, you know, looking at her calendar, not having anything booked was a little scary and getting used to that. Right. So like during the pandemic, (laughs) like, oh boy, now what do I do? How do I adapt with these changes? Um, And Pegasus Early Music had mentioned a lot about wanting to tackle younger audiences. And so between both the pandemic where they realized they're actually getting a much wider audience base going online. And now they're going to permanently have something going online going forward. They're also doing a lot of focus on younger artists to get them engaged into early music. So hoping that they would also draw younger audience members as well. So that adapting and understanding how to keep their audiences interested and keep their ensembles moving forward and alive. And then last but not least, So we had asked a a lot of individuals some challenging questions that they were facing recently because of the pandemic, because of the Black Lives Matter movement, social justice, because of educational initiatives. And a lot of them had mentioned that it's really important for them to constantly look and reevaluate their mission and their focuses and what they do as administrators and leaders in the music field so that they can move forward appropriately. And some examples of this was load bang, right? They had mentioned they had a competition that they used to charge for and they realized that was a huge barrier. So they removed that. And then they also in the part of the competition had asked people to actually write for their ensemble, which makes sense. But they're a very unique ensemble. So if they didn't accept there it for the no competition, yeah. there's no <laughs> other group that's going to play this piece. So they just wrote a piece for no reason. Yeah. So they realized that giving them a sample of their work would be better use of their time and being mindful of that moving forward. So that was a really thoughtful way of really protecting the composers in, in a space that they're not you know, being overutilized or underutilized. Both Jack Quartet and Third Coast Percussion, as all white male organizations had talked greatly about the reflections on what pieces that they're working with, how they're collaborating with others, how they reach individuals and how they can use their own privilege to help promote things. And uh, Tony Arnold, for her, it was about asking the hard questions about her career choices, right? Um, And constantly thinking about what makes her happy and what she wants to do and still making a huge success out of that. And so realizing that, you know, even though it's not the quote unquote typical structure or path outline of what most musicians would go through, she still made something of herself in that mindset because she spoke to her own true desires and wants out of her career. So all of those things about asking those questions, thinking about what's challenging you personally, thinking about challenging your organization, thinking about music industry in timely manners and how to evaluate and move forward appropriately based on what's happening in the area. Yeah. And I think the other thing too, that is really powerful about Tony's story is, is that, you know, sometimes you do end up where you intended to, and then you discover that maybe actually this isn't where I want to be. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, maybe, maybe actually I'm more interested in doing the, the production of the music Mm. itself um, and not necessarily conducting it and shaping Mm -hmm. it. Right. Um, And so I think that that's a really interesting and, and compelling kind of, um, uh, experience to watch uh, 
as a musician. Yes. Bingo, bingo. Um, I, I was really taken with um, these ideas, these themes that had cropped up through all of our interviews. And I think that, you know, one of the things that is interesting to consider as a, a person who is hosting um, podcasts is that you tend to coalesce around a lot of the same ideas, mm -hmm. right? And as you talk to people, that informs your next experience and your next conversation and things like that. And so it's unsurprising to me to see how some of these discussions that we saw in kind of a life skills context also cropped up in the community engagement and social justice context. You know, there were certain um, groups that stood out to me uh, as I was thinking about these themes. And this, of course, does not uh, fully encompass the entirety of our first season. But um, I thought it was particularly interesting on the making connections front to consider the tensions between community engagement and outreach, right? Mm -hmm. um, for those of us who came through music school at a certain time, community outreach was the kind of buzzword, the thing that we did. And, um, you know, I felt like the fifth house's approach to uh, what they call taking the ouch out of outreach was uh, a really illuminating one. And one of the things that uh, I believe it was Melissa uh, was speaking about was the idea of the social practice, civic practice, studio mm -hmm. practice continuum. And um, the idea that as an ensemble, you, you know, you have these three different kind of ways that you approach project creation and development, right? Um, you have the studio experience where you're, it's your own project, it's, you know, your own creation, it's your own kind of vision for what it is that you're trying to do. But um, on the social element, you have these social impact goals, right? These, these ways in which you want your project to interact with the world beyond the studio. Um, and then she went further to say, or, or at least to talk about the idea of civic practice mm -hmm. and the idea of designing a project that's in partnership with the community around you, right? And the specific example that she gave was the idea of using music to treat or to help to treat uh, trauma. Um, and, you know, and, and just having to think about, well, how do we as artists function and interact and uh, work with our audiences and our listeners, and maybe not even our audiences and listeners, to help address some of the needs that we have in our communities. I also felt like the Acropolis Reed Quintet's uh, episode was particularly interesting in the way that they talked about making space for untrained musicians yes. and the interactions that they had with uh, Detroit-based students teaching composition and premiering works for students who would not otherwise have this opportunity. And, and they spoke at length about the idea that we've, in the music world, we've become very comfortable with the idea of ensembles and residents being a thing at the university level. But what about hospitals? Mm -hmm. What about elementary schools? Yeah. What about other types of community um, experiences? in which we as artists really should be integrating into the overall community. So I felt like this idea of making connections was really powerful when you consider the fact that not only should we be making connections within our industry, mm -hmm. but also outside of our industry, yes. if we want for music to have the most uh, powerful impact that it can. It's literally fostering community because there's only so much you can do when you just go to the higher echelons. You you have to start from the ground up. Otherwise, it, it doesn't work. Which is interesting because I think this is the area that we struggle with the most in classical music, yes. right? Because it wasn't once upon a time. We were 
a huge part of the community. It was literally how we functioned. Um, but things have since shifted and funding streams have shifted and where you find us has shifted. And I think we need to get back to our roots and really think about where this came from in the first place. Absolutely. Right. Right. And the, you know, and the other thing to consider too, is this ivory tower idea, mm -hmm. right? I mean, high quality music should not only be found in specific places, high quality music and music making should be found everywhere. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, that is what is going to help propel the artistic world and the musical world um, more broadly. So the second theme, the idea of ad adaptability, uh, I found really compelling in terms of the educational practices uh, that many of our guests were uh, espousing. And one of the things uh, that we spoke uh, about towards the end of the season was with Ikatut Gedeas Nawa mm. and the idea of how to bring Balinese gamelan music to America when there's very little mm -hmm. context and very yeah. little background that makes that uh, simple. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so, you know, one of the things that we talked about at length was the idea that Balinese Gamelan is based on an entirely different system. Uh, it is based primarily um, as an oral tradition in Bali. And one of the, ad the uh, adaptions that Balinese Gamelan instructors have had to make in the United States is finding ways to notate the music for American students to understand, just to get them into the idea of um, what Balinese Gamelan is about, right? And um, I, I found that particularly compelling because when you think about it, one of the things that scares classical musicians from jazz is a very similar mm, idea, yeah. right? And, you know, as we are educating our students, one of the things that I think we really need to start to grapple with is um, how can we train students to have more flexible ways of learning mm -hmm and more flexible ways of teaching so that maybe we can find a way to cross genres mm, more simply yeah. and more easily. One of the other adaptability kind of components of the season that was really fascinating was Third Coast Percussion and their approach to developing mobile apps for their <laughs> albums. <laughs> and I mean, what a great idea in a highly technological world, right? Um, this is a, a, a fantastic way of helping people figure out how to compose like John Cage and how to understand the ways that John Cage put together his music mm -hmm which then in turn informs the listening experience uh, radically. Um, and I just felt like that was a really interesting thing that one of our guests was doing that I really hope that maybe we as, as musicians will be thinking about developing as we move forward. Oh, absolutely. I downloaded all of those apps and had so much fun playing around with them. I don't know if you two <laughs> did as well, but it was it was really good fun. Lovely listeners, please download the Coast Percussions apps. They're available in the app store. They're super fun. So the final um, theme that we had here, uh, at least in terms of uh, community engagement, was this idea of asking hard questions and evaluating. And um, the two groups that really stood out in this regard was um, Castle of Our Skins. And our conversation with um, Ashley Gordon really illuminated for me something that I don't think that we as, um, I mean, I'm speaking as an American, but we have really kind of grappled with yet in the in regards to the idea of representing the diaspora right and so one of the things that ashley was speaking about was the idea that um, 
Castle of Our Skins has been really contemplating and considering the fact that when they are programming their upcoming seasons and curating different events, that they are really making an effort right now to think beyond the African-American experience and more into the um, global Black diaspora. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I think that we all need to start thinking about is that as we focus on access and diversity and equity and inclusion and belonging, um, that we are really thinking globally, not just um, centrally. Absolutely. It's the aim of making sure that, I mean, we are moving towards a globalized society. We pretty much have a globalized society as it, this is. And it's now the sort of, we're at the turning point of, do we just open everything up and be nice to each other? Or is everyone going to close their doors and go, no, this isn't happening yet. And that that's kind of a terrifying prospect. So, you know, the other ensemble that I want to kind of mention in this regard is uh, the Jack Quartet and specifically their program with the Jack Studio, where um, you know, when we were talking to John Pickford Richards about that this particular program, he was mentioning the fact that um, they do recognize that they are an ensemble of all white men and that it is very important and it's an imperative really for them. Third Coast mentioned this as well, that it's an imperative for them uh, with that type of privilege to make sure that they are creating spaces and opening spaces to um, artists and composers of all different types of identities, right? And so, you know, on a basic level, they've really thought about how can we use Jack Studio to encourage applications from composers of um, African and uh, Latinx and Asian Arab Native American descent? How can we be supporting women who are, I should say, women identifying individuals? Mm -hmm. um, how can we support disabled and immigrant individuals, right? I don't think I've seen um, in a lot of our uh, industry, I haven't really seen a lot of people identifying immigrants as a population that need to be supported, but this is something that they have really started to lead the way on. Um, you know, the thing I think that's really important about our conversation with John as well was the idea that uh, it's uh, all, everything here that we're talking about is all about resources, mm -hmm. right? and making certain that these resources are available and, and um, openly accessible to um, people regardless of their background. Absolutely. And so I thought that was a, a particularly compelling thing to watch as we go forward in the future. Mm -hmm. So moving on to the last section, what we all do, why we even have this podcast is the fact that we are performers and creators. And I'm going to use the same model that Blair and Adam have used of making connections, adaptability, and asking hard questions, although doing it in a slightly different way. So with regards to making connections, Blair's already mentioned this, but be nice to people. It's interesting listening to certainly all of the groups that we spoke to um, as to talking about how they formed in the first place. So many of them formed because they were friends in college, or maybe they had played in an ensemble together um, outside of school and decided to work together. But then you have other groups. You have the Amatis tr piano trio, who uh, the <laughs> violinist and the cellist, so Leah and Sam, were good friends. Um, and they just decided to go busking because they needed to make money somehow for <laughs> to pay for their fees. And they went and broke into a piano competition and decided to find a pianist that they liked. And they managed to make it work. And they're a fab fabulous group. But that was the outlier compared to all of the other connections that we've heard about. The same can be 
said of the composers, knowing that you make friends with composers, composers make friends with musicians and that's how this music comes about. Michael Fraser is one of the people who really, really highlighted this. Uh, and obviously this is a little bit of a shout out to my instrument, the harp, but the reason why he's focused so much on that is because we became friends and I annoyed him until he wrote me a bunch of music. <laughs> But that is how a lot of these connections start. And it's something that is incredibly important to sort of see how this then plays into how these people work together when they're creating a piece, when they put it on stage, anything like that. So that's something that we really need to keep in mind. Now, moving on to adaptability. Obviously, the pandemic has thrown a just a teeny tiny spanner <laughs> into the works for a lot of people. And classical musicians have had to completely change their lives around. Interestingly, a very, very dear friend of mine was commenting that pop musicians, rock musicians have known how to do all this stuff online and virtually for decades, probably at this point. And they're turning around to us now and going, well, duh. <laughs> <laughs> you missed the boat nearly. But just knowing that the you have to adapt to be able to do these things. M multiple uh, groups have done different ways of adapting to the pandemic. I'll talk about 12th Day because they started a Patreon. And that is something that they have used to connect with their audiences. They were offering a gig every month. So whether that was recorded separately or together, depending on the lockdown laws at the time, they were also doing a listening party. So they just connected with their community and had a really nice listen through to an album that people, people within the community chose and they had a chat about it. And then just looking at people like Miguel de la Guía, who uh, he has been, I mean, th that man has uh, produced so much music in general, but in this past year, a lot of his stuff has been done that has been recorded separately or all of the instrumentalists have been recorded separately. Uh, an example is obviously, as we mentioned in the episode, uh, his commission for Five by Five, where they were all recorded separately and put together and they had a music video. So uh, music videos for classical music or folk <laughs> music or jazz music, that's something that we are now adapting into now because it's not just a case of go to a stuffy concert hall and be in an uncomfortable pew with your program, but you have to find other ways of adapting because that's also the way that you're going to bring your audiences in. And finally, we'll talk a bit about asking hard questions. Now, we asked questions that were probably a little probing to all of our groups. Hopefully we didn't put anyone on the spot too much, but it was interesting to hear a lot of what people had to say. One of the most important moments this year, which didn't make it into the podcast. This is actually after we finished recording. Uh, and I know this was mentioned on a previous cast chat, was chatting with Juliana and Eric from the Society um, uh, for Chamber Music in Rochester, where they were talking about finding uh, different composers that they could put on a program that wasn't just dead white men. They were asking for uh, art, who we knew I mean, who were composers of color, who were uh, female identifying individuals, sort of all of those different things because they, they were saying, look, these are questions that we need to deal with. Yes, we might get the audience in through the door with some Beethoven string quartet that you're doing, but you need to balance it out with something else. And actually, 
one more just to throw in there is to go back to Michael Frazier's interview and the talk about finding asking hard questions of yourself as well and where you come from and what what influences you are going to take from so obviously Michael identifies both as Latinx uh, and as an African-American man and so it's it's one of those, he has two really rich cultures that he is able to fuse together in his music, but also is saying anyone can use this music. You just, you just need to be aware of where it comes from. So once again, thank you so much for joining us for this first season of 25 episodes. We will be back with our introductory episode on September 1st, and that is just going to introduce you to a few changes that we're going to have in the second season. And then our first official episode will be on September 8th, which is with the wonderful Margaret Leoy, who has just stepped down as the CEO of Chamber Music America quite a wonderful name to be kicking off our second season with. We really hope that you have enjoyed listening and learning with us this year, and we hope to be continuing this going forward. Catch us on all our social medias and on our website. And without further ado, we'll see you in September. Thank you.